This is Matthew 13, 24 through 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So his servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven may be compared. The kingdom of heaven is like. That's a refrain we hear quite often, especially once we get to Matthew 13, but it's going to come up again as we walk through the rest of Matthew in the, in the weeks and the months to come. But it, it tells us something of the kingdom, the kingdom coming, something that was ever-present upon the minds of the Jewish people in Jesus' day? When is that kingdom, that end times kingdom, going to come? And we know in Jesus' day it was something that they expected soon. They expected that to be accomplished soon. Such was the messianic fervor of those days, of Jesus' day, that during the pilgrim festivals of the Jews, during Passover, during the Feast of Weeks, during tabernacles, the Roman government would increase the number of soldiers in and around Jerusalem because of the messianic fervor that was there and the tendency of people that claim to be messianic figures rising up. Their expectation, the Jews' expectation for this to happen, it was to happen all at once. At the, at the end of time, in the Old Testament, and Jewish expectation of that kingdom was for the establishment of God's kingdom, directly preceded by the ultimate destruction of unrighteousness and foreign oppression. It was going to happen in one fell swoop. Their expectation all at once, the end point of history. We hear this belief later expressed by the disciples. They ask a question. Do you remember the question they asked? Jesus, he dies, he rises, he spends 40 days walking with them, teaching them, and, and it comes to the time of his ascension, and they have a question for him. And the question, it shows us the reality of this expectation. Their question in Acts 1-6, Lord, 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Hasn't 40 days been long enough? And Jesus' response is, it's not for you to know the day or the hour that the Father has set. He's already assured them in his previous teaching that there is a day that's set aside, which the Father will send him back. They're expecting now because of everything that they've learned and things, and Jesus says, not yet. Even at that point, they were expecting that the end was imminent, which in one regard it was and always is. Jesus could come back at any time. And yet, it was time for them to await the Helper and then to go into all the world with his gospel. We live in much the same situation. His return is imminent, and yet, because he hasn't come again, the time always remains before us, as long as we can call today, today, to go forward with that message, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to go into all the world, wherever he would lead us, wherever he would call us, with his gospel, scattering his seed, the word, that people would hear, and finding good seed, which the parable of the weeds says, that these, this good seed in the parable of the, of the weeds and the wheat are brothers and sisters in him going and finding those scattered seeds that he's put there. We come to these three parables in particular, and, and, and one of the interesting things about these three parables is, do you notice what they assume? They assume at the time that Jesus is proclaiming them that the kingdom is present, not in its fullness, but it's very much present. Seed to tree, leaven to dough, the wheat and the weeds growing. There's a real presence of the kingdom. It's as though if we had if we had seeds before us, I mean, every gardener, every farmer, anyone who does anything with seeds in the spring, they take their seeds out and they plant them and they expect if they plant carrots, what's going to happen? Carrots are going to come up. In that little carrot seed, what do we have the very real presence of? Carrots. It's got to grow. But when I put that in there, I know there's, there's carrot there. And so it's got to grow. And Jesus is pointing to that with these, especially with these three. They specifically deal with this misunderstanding of the Jews in this time. They were expecting everything right now. And, and Jesus in these parables is talking about the kingdom, how it was to come and how it is coming. We're going to sing in just a few, just over a month. Probably something we'll sing, a line we'll sing. Do you remember it from a little town of Bethlehem? How silently, how silently. What is it? The wondrous gift is given. There isn't anything much more silent than putting a seed into the ground and then awaiting, right? It's there. It's present. It's going to come when in the right time. Jesus is dealing with this misunderstanding. And, and the other thing that he's dealing with and that he's teaching us by and large with these is he's trying to teach us not to scorn the ordinary, and seemingly insignificant. Because look at what he, he talks about a farmer sowing a field. He talks, about, he talks about a seed being planted that it would grow. He talks about a woman who puts some leaven inside some dough. These are, these are common things. And yet, wondrous things come about through them. So don't scorn the ordinary, the seeming in, seemingly insignificant. For what God is doing, it's going to exceed our greatest imaginations. We can't comprehend the wonder of what he's prepared for us. And these, these parables help remind us of that. They encourage patience. 
Because patience is required. They encourage trust. Trust that what has been done is going to come to fruition. And a daily remembrance for us who live when we do of what Christ has accomplished and is continuing to accomplish. If you wanted to call them this, they're parables of the kingdom, but they're parables of the kingdom present and future. And in the interim, you could call them parables of patience. Patience in the presence or in the present and patience for the future. Because there's a future that's implied here. There's a future that's indicated here. A future that is, is wonderful. And so we're going we're gonna to bounce through this, not necessarily in the order that it's written down. We're going to start with the mustard seed and the leaven. Then we'll look at the weeds and the wheat. And then we'll look at that, that portion that says that what's been hidden is, is being revealed. But when we look at the mustard seed and the leaven, verses 31 Through 33, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This mustard seed, it's the smallest of all seeds. And some, they get on their high horse and object at this point. Well, we actually know that the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. <laughs> not the point. Talking about eyes to see and ears to hear, not the point. Now, it is a very small seed. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, it's about one twelfth to one sixteenth of an inch. Those of you that have a tape measure on you, that's impressive. Uh, you can pull it out and you can find what that one sixteenth of an inch is. Right? It's very small. If we held it in the hand right up here, it'd be difficult, if not impossible, to see. And some object to this, saying that, well, if Jesus really knew everything, he would know. That wasn't the point. It's not literally the smallest of all seeds, yet we know it was the smallest of all cultivated seeds at that time. But it wasn't Jesus' point to teach a lesson in botany. Rather, it was to give a tangible picture of how the kingdom begins. Note what, it, what, what, what this one does. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took. So he's got a grain, a, one a grain of mustard seed in his hand, and he took it out. He was intentional, wasn't he? He took that. He didn't leave the mustard seed where? In his hand or in a drawer or someplace else. He took it and he planted it. And as he planted that mustard seed, that smallest of all seeds, but when it had grown, it was larger than all the garden plants. I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with mustard. I just you look these things up and find them out because my thumbs are not green. But a mustard plant could grow 8 to 12 feet tall from that itty-bitty, insignificant, tiny little seed. It was intentionally planted. The expectation was that it would grow because that's what it's made to do. This is a sure farmer who expects the seed to do what the seed was designed to do. And this seed, it exceeds expectations. It grows to such a degree that what does it tell us happens? Birds of the air build nests in its branches. I don't know how many garden plants you've been around, but I haven't seen many that end up with nests in their branches. This is a great degree of growth. These birds of air build nests in it. And this is possibly right here an allusion to Ezekiel 17.23. In Ezekiel 17.23, the prophet writes, On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. In the context of that, the immediate context, the Lord would replant Israel. 
This was in that time that they were being displaced, but he would replant them. But Jesus also suggests here that he will include Gentiles. That's that allusion to every kind of bird will dwell. And it shouldn't surprise us at this point in Matthew because it's been hinted at since the outset of Matthew's gospel. When we looked at the, when we looked at the genealogies in the beginning in Matthew 1, who's included in there? Well, there's these inclusions of Gentiles in this family tree. Matthew's trying to get your attention that there's going to be Gentiles included in here. And this parable, while speaking to the nature of the kingdom of heaven coming coming so small and growing to such a gigantic degree, also the reality that the kingdom of heaven is going to be made up of all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. So we've got this exponential growth growth that takes place. And he doesn't leave it at that. He, He gives this one quick parable about this mustard seed and how amazingly it grows. And then he takes one verse to tell him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. I mean, part of what Jesus is teaching in these two, in these two parables is do not despair. When the kingdom seems small, when it seems severely oppressed, it begins humbly. It grows incrementally. It grows from within. Let the faithful be patient as it grows. Also of note, Jesus takes the time to address these two parables to who? In one parable, who's who's doing the work? Who planted the seed? A man. In the second parable, who's the one who hid 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 the leaven? Woman. Jesus is teaching who? Men and women. This is a weird rabbi. Because this wasn't something that was typical or normal of the day. Jesus is teaching everyone. And he's giving them these illustrations, these stories that resonate from their day-to-day work. Something that, I understand that. Now they might not understand the entire heavenly meaning that's behind it, but we know that those with eyes to see would see. And he says at the end of this, those with ears, let them hear. And so there's this appeal, there's this wonderful appeal to everyone. No one's neglected in this because they would recognize it. And we come to this woman with leaven. And the the weird thing about leaven, if in the mustard seed we had surprising growth from something so tiny in leaven, here we have something that very much potentially within within the understanding of the audience would be offensive. Because in Scripture, leaven most often represents what? Sin, corruption. Hey, if, you, if you showed up before Passover was taking place, you'd find probably more than one broom in the house. Because they're trying to clean it out. Because as they prepare for Passover, there's supposed to be a removal of all leaven. Get it out because we don't want any corruption. We don't want anything there. It's a symbol for sin. And Jesus here compares the kingdom of heaven to leaven. It rhymes. It makes it easy to remember. But leaven. And, and, and when we look at that, we, perhaps it's offensive to the original audience because it typically represents corruption. We have to remember that symbols are flexible. Okay? Symbols are flexible. Just think of this. In the Bible, water. Water is a means of washing and of quenching thirst. But it was also a means of what? Judgment. Drowning. 
That's what took place in the flood. That wasn't just symbolic. That was real. And so we see water used that way. What about lions? Lions show up in Scripture, and there's a couple of pretty significant characters in the Bible that lion gets used to represent. Do you remember who they are? The lion of Judah, who is Jesus Christ. And then there's that roaring, ravening lion seeking someone to devour, who is Satan. And so as we look at this, that perhaps got their attention, it's perhaps offensive, but we have to remember that symbols, they're flexible, and it reminds us in a simple way and in an impactful way, context matters. It matters here and it matters everywhere we read. Context matters. And so as Jesus speaks here, this leaven, it's not indicative of corruption. It's indicative of something that, what did she do? She took it. She intentionally places it. And it's just, it's kind of, I mean, when you, if you laugh out loud, it's fine. You can't hide leavening in something that's unleavened because what's going to happen? It's going to spread. It's like, you might have hidden it, but it ain't staying hidden for very long. It was hidden, but it wasn't to remain hidden. She likely pinched off some leavened dough. And the measure here, I mean, this is a woman who has a pretty ambitious expectation because three measures of flour equals about 50 pounds. Now, how many of you on a regular basis say, I'm going to make some bread, and they get, you get a whole giant, one of those big bags of flour? I mean, I've seen bread made in my house many times, and it's nowhere near that much. But she takes this little bit, 50 pounds of flour, and puts it in there. She's, she expects that what? That what God has made this, it's going to accomplish. God will accomplish what he has set out forth to accomplish. And it doesn't matter how big or small it is. Here's this small portion. It leavens and transforms a larger amount of dough. And what Jesus is pointing to and what this reveals is that the kingdom changes everything it touches. It's, it becomes obvious. Does it mean that everyone is saved? No, that's to ignore the context again, right? We know that's not the case just from the context of the passage before us. But it changes everything. And that change, I mean, it wasn't like she hit it in the 50 pounds, poof, we got this giant. No, it took time. Patience is required. That change came from within, slowly, organically, a small beginning, this grand conclusion. And when we look at this, it's not hard for us to see and point to. So many times people in our world today and over time have said, look at all the bad things that have happened through religion and through Christianity and what have you. And they always want to point to the Crusades and this, that, and the other thing. But it's like, but have you looked at the positive things? Have you looked at the change of the world that's been brought about through Christianity in particular? In India, when Christianity first shows up, guess what happened to all the widows? It's called sati. When their husband died, they threw themselves on the burning funeral pyre. Because now that he was gone, that life was no longer his life. It was also an expression of, of respect and, and love for him. But it says something about that life. Christianity comes in, and what happens? Now there's value in it. How many hospitals do you go by? And it's a Catholic hospital, a Methodist hospital, a Presbyterian hospital. I mean, that whole hospital movement that we would care for those that are sick and dying, that, that came about through Christianity. 
orphanages, taking care of those who are the least of these, that they would have the things that they need. Is it ideal? No, we want them to be in a family, but why is that there? Because they don't have that, and we're going to go and we're going to care for them. That came about through Christianity, through a Christian worldview. It began in Rome. When the father would stand over that newborn, and he would either do this or this, and if it was this, there was a nice garbage pile outside the house that they could lay that baby in. And the people who were coming by and collecting those babies, do you know who they trusted? Do you know who they believed? Do you know who their Savior was? It didn't come out of the worldview that was common at the day. It came out of the Christians who would collect them. That care. The university movement, and we can have all sorts of issues with the universities of our day, but most of those universities that we take issue with today, guess how they started? They started under the belief that God has made all things. All things are under the umbrella of God. And he has said that we can know him and we can know more about him through what he's created, the creation he's put there. Now, they've lost their way, which, I mean, we understand that. But recognize, has it been overall a net good or evil that those universities were established? The schools were established. But like so many things, is you know, they lose their way. They wander. But look at, I mean, the kingdom, it's changed everything. And it's come about largely through Christian worldview. Again, it's not, it's not to say that other things don't do good, but consistently, the elimination of the slave trade in the British Empire. Believers, it took time, it took patience. But that leaven is working its way through in little ways that ended up manifesting in bigger ways. And there's still more to come. And we rejoice in that. The mustard seed and the leaven are wonderful stories of realities that we are at, we here are evidence of that it's continued to grow, it's continued to expand. But the weeds and the wheat, that's kind of the main one in this section. Jesus puts before them this parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. This is the one who, remember what, remember, remember earlier what it said? What wouldn't he do? Quench a smoking flax? And a bruised reed he would not break? Do you, do you see in this story, this, 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 there's an application here that's coming out, that no, leave them, we're going to let them grow. And then when the time comes for the harvest, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the weed into my barn. And so, as he tells this parable of the wheat and the weeds, we get this picture of two different kingdoms, if you will, growing side by side. And the disciples don't understand. Did you notice that? They hear it, but they don't understand it because they go into the house 
In verse 36, he left the crowds, went into the house, and the disciples, it's like, I mean, the, the way that Matthew writes this, and his disciples came to us, like, as soon as they're in the door, the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, can you tell us? It's like, they got the, seems like they maybe got the mustard seed and got the yeast, or got the, yeah, got the, got the leavening. But they get in the door and like, hey, that one, the weeds of the field, can you help us out? Because we don't get it. We don't understand. And Jesus gives the understanding to the disciples. They didn't understand it. They didn't work it out on their own. They're brought to understanding once again because they ask him to explain it to them. Any of you who lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Father, and he will what? He did it. They're such a good example for this. For all the time we take the mickey out of the disciples for going, oh my goodness, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe Peter's running off at the mouth again. Here's somewhere, give credit where credit's due. Who did they, what did they do? Jesus, we don't understand. Can you tell us what it means? And Jesus starts immediately. He answered. Yeah. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is, is the world. It's a good reminder to us that everything in the world is God's. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. So, if we remember... A couple weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the sower. That parable largely reveals that the word receives varied responses as it's proclaimed throughout the world. The parable of the weeds seems to reveal that believers and unbelievers will live together through this age. Both in the world, and we have to recognize in the visible church. Because there's an argument about, you know, is this, you know, is this talking about the world as a whole, or is this talking about the, the church? You know, that there's going to be wheats and tares among that. I, I, I don't think it's exclusively either one. Jesus, as he explains it, he says, well, it is the world. Okay, this church, his church, is where in the world. So it makes pretty common logical sense that there's going to be a mixed group, and they're going to grow up together. Now, these weeds that are mentioned, the weeds are likely what's called darnel. It's a poisonous weed that plagued Israel's grain fields. But it was sneaky. It was sneaky because you couldn't tell the difference until when? Until the wheat starts to bear fruit. And by then, I mean, the master reveals this. It's, it's, it's too late. Now, it's interesting that Roman law did provide for the punishment of one who would do such a thing to someone's field because this wasn't unheard of in their day. Your neighbor made you mad? How can I get back to him? Well, I can throw some weed into his field. I could throw some salt into his field. That does wonders for your garden. Don't take gardening tips from me. But the point was, even Roman law recognized this. So again, there's a point of reference here. You say, oh, it provided for the punishment of one who sowed such things into someone's field. But as this darnel grew, the roots would get in, intertwined as they grew. And as the weed came up, it looked like the wheat. It wasn't known until the wheat was at a fruit-bearing stage. And again, in this, in this parable, we have this surprise. The master, the servants come, and the servants, good on the servants, right? 
What are they concerned about? They're concerned about the wheat. And, you, I mean, if you want to know the limitations of man's understanding, right? I mean, these, these, these well-intended servants, like, we got to go and pull the weeds out. Right, Master? And he says what? No. I want you to leave them. That would be surprising. But it reveals something about the master too. The owner of the field, of the world, thought it was wise or better to allow the wheat and the tares to flourish concurrently. It shows a concern for the wheat. And he expresses that. Lest by pulling these out, you would uproot these fruit-bearing plants. Notice the wonder of what, he's, what, what he reveals there too. He reveals an assurance that it will bear fruit even though there's this intertwining that's down underneath the surface that they, that, that, that they can't see. So now they're going to bear fruit. And when we apply this into the church, are we supposed to practice discipline? This gets uncomfortable because we get you know antsy at that word. Yes, we are. We can point to Scripture with that. In Scripture, we see it pointed out in 1 Corinthians 5 and then in 2 Corinthians 2. The reason we get antsy with discipline, has everybody ever wondered about this? It's because we're bad at it. We try to do it on our own power, by our own you know, plans, and we're bad at it. Like Paul had told these guys in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a guy who was in an adulterous relationship with, with his stepmom, basically, but, and, and, and the church is sitting there going, look at how tolerant we are, isn't it great? And Paul says, no, this is anything but great. Um, even, even the pagans outside don't tolerate the kind of sin that you're tolerating. This doesn't show how loving you are. You've been, you're, you're, no. You need to address him in his sin. And if there's not repentance, you cut him off. Not that he would be destroyed, but that he would see what? His sin, that he would repent. And the Corinthians, they did it. They did it. And then it sounds like this guy, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians 2, it sounds like this guy came back and he recognized that he had sinned and he repents. And they're like, no. Paul's like, okay, guys, you, let's go back a little bit. Okay, now he's repented. You restore him. Because if you don't, this one who's recognized his sin, who's repented of his sin, and has come to you who were offended in his sin, he's repented. You're to restore him because why? Because the enemy would love for that burden to get harder and heavier and bigger so that he would be lost forever. But no, restore him. Did you not remember what I said to Peter? How many times should I forgive? Seven times seven. Seven? No, 70 times 7. Paul's applying that. He's come back. He's submitted to discipline. Restore him so that his soul would not be further burdened. So yes, we practice discipline. We have to be wise in how we exercise it. And we have to exercise it according to the direction of God's word and by the power of his spirit. And we do it not as a desire to see them destroyed forever, but to see them restored. That's what discipline is supposed to look like because discipline in the image of Christ is full of love. It doesn't mean that there's not hard things that take place. There are. But sometimes you've got to walk through that so that the fruit comes through. The kingdom is present in this field and in the world in the midst of resistance. And we have to daily remember this. 
We have to daily remember this and use it to, to encourage each other. It's not a surprise that things didn't go well because we live in a world, in a field that still continues to struggle because of the fall, because of the reality of sin. And so we as kingdom members, as brothers and sisters in the kingdom, as we grow in the presence and in the midst of resistance, we have to daily remember this so that we can preach the gospel to ourselves. We can preach the gospel to each other. We can encourage each other. Yes, it's hard. We're not going to call good evil or evil good. It is evil what's happened, or it is wrong, or it is hard, or it hurts. Remember who we've believed. And I don't know why it's happening. Don't, don't do impressions of Job's friends. Because sometimes we don't know. But walk in the midst. Encourage. Remember in the midst of difficulty that you are not alone. That though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For what? You are with me. You're with me. And you've put brothers and sisters with me. Though admittedly they want to stay at least arm's length away right now. Rejoice that we're not alone. It's present and it's growing and it will bear fruit. It is bearing fruit. And, and so Jesus, what he claims here, remember that assumption of the Jewish people at that time is it was going to come quickly. Jesus claims here that the advent of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, and that latter day kingdom that they thought was going to come all at once, Jesus is saying in this parable, it doesn't happen all at once. Your expectation is, is, isn't, isn't zeroed in. Paradoxically, the two realms coexist. They're growing side by side. And as he expounds this to the, to the disciples, he says, the good seed is the word of the kingdom. That was from the parable of the sower. The good seed is the word of the kingdom. Here, again, flexibility of images, right? Here, the good seed, what does he say it is? It's the sons of the kingdom. Okay, And if you ever, you know, sometimes we live in an era where it's like, well, why does he just say the sons of the kingdom? That is so misogynistic. Here's the thing. Who got the inheritance in their days? The men, the sons. So when he says sons in this way that is inclusive of sons and daughters, that is a way that draws all people in. If you are a son of the kingdom, that means you receive what? Inheritance. That's why he speaks that way. Again, let's, let's make note of the context, okay? These sons, they're sons of the kingdom. They're what? They are brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to receive that inheritance. So the good seed in this parable is the sons of the kingdom. Jesus scatters both his truth and his people throughout the world. Jesus is the sower. He continually scatters the good seed, the gospel. He sows with stories. The kingdom comes. Not with force, not with ultimatums, not with armies, but with nonviolent appeal to the imagination. He says, this is how it's coming. And he lives it too because he's got someone who says, I'm going to strike out because they're going to take you away. And he cuts off the ear and he says, what? Put your sword away. It's not how my kingdom's going to come. He tells Pilate, my kingdom were of this world, we'd fight with the things of the world. We don't fight with the things of the world because the kingdom is not of the world. It's in the world. It's growing. It's not of the world. So he speaks of these seeds that are all over. And, and he speaks of 
the reality of a finish line. There is an end. It is coming. In this case, it's a harvest. A harvest is when it gets done. As we were driving to and back on our vacation, we saw combines out in the field because it was time to what? Harvest. I sign up for a race. I want to make sure that there is what? A finish line. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's one year, the Chicago Marathon, I think this guy got fired. There was an extra mile on the end of the Chicago Marathon. So the finish line didn't. Everybody's checking their GPS. It's like, you started your kick about a mile too early because this race is 27.2 miles long, not 26.2. And 26.2 was more than enough. We want a finish line. And Jesus says in this parable, there is a finish line. The harvest is the end of the age. All causes of sin, all lawbreakers, will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of those who are wheat will be gathered and will shine with resplendent glory. The fullness of the kingdom is coming and will come. And when we look at this, it, it reminds us, as we're in Christ, I mean, Paul, I think, picks this up later on. Don't cause your brothers to stumble. Where he says, if by what I eat, I cause my brother to stumble, I haven't been faithful. Paul's not saying that if I screw up, that I'm, all of a sudden I'm not saved anymore. But he wants to make an effort to what? To not be a cause of sin. To not be a stumbling block. I don't want to be a stumbling block because once I've been a stumbling block once, just like all other sin, it becomes easier to be what? A stumbling block again. And here we've got this as, what, all those, those causes of sin, those lawbreakers? I mean, Paul talks time and again. He's not, he's not worried about his assurance, but he wants to make that assurance more sure. I proclaim this to you and I run because, because what? Having run, I don't want to be disqualified. And so there's an end to come and there will be those taken away. And those that are weed are going to be gathered. And if you've no, maybe you've noticed this before, maybe you haven't, but in some respects, according to this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a barn. Right? And what does this farmer put in his barn? That which is most precious to him. That which he's protecting and preserving. That which will be cared for for all eternity will be in his presence. It'll be with him. There is an end to come. The kingdom is broader than the church because who made everything? God. The church is the concentration point. It's the vanguard. The forefront of an action or a movement. Vanguard. That's what a vanguard is. It's the concentration point, the vanguard of the kingdom, but not the whole kingdom because God's kingdom, it embraces what? The church? Businesses, governments, schools, families. We could go on with our list. Wherever a believer goes, the kingdom goes with them. And the kingdom gains expression in, in those places. That's why we ask that we be faithful in every setting. Because all of the world, all the things are God's things. Wherever the kingdom goes, it does encounter a cosmic struggle. 
it'll meet resistance. But the joy that we see reflected and proclaimed in this parable, and in the others as well, is that the Lord who plants also protects the church. He planted it, he protects it, he provides for it, and the seed that he's planted will not return to him empty. We see him where we saw him. Go back. If we read the Old Testament, we saw him do this with Israel throughout the Old Testament. He protected, he provided. It's a wonderful illustration for us. And the other thing we have to remember is that it's almost Every gospel work doesn't have this giant, audacious, flashbang beginning. It's a small beginning. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. The Savior of the world, of the universe, came as what? A baby. He grew, he lived 33 years, and he died where? In a backwater of the Roman provinces. But that seed that's grown, do you see the tree that it's become and is becoming? Do we recognize it? Don't be ashamed or embarrassed of the Lord's beginnings. He opens his reign, as hard as it might be to say, with a feeble and despicable commencement. Just this tiny little thing that's scorned. Isaiah said that's the way it would be. We esteemed him not. The Lord opens his reign with his feeble and despicable commencement for the express purpose that his power may be more fully illustrated by its unexpected progress. How often have there been governments and people that have tried to eliminate the church, and yet what has happened? It's continued to grow. We, we perhaps look at the church where we live today, and we go, is there any hope? We don't see the growth here that we would like to see, and that's good. I mean, we, we want to see growth. It seems to have plateaued or it's going down. But do we just look here or do we look at what the church is because it's one body and where God has brought just abundant growth as it continues to grow to the global south and to China, to places where it's like, how is the church growing in those places against such firm resistance? There's those that are from those places who have said, what I pray for the church in America is that they would get some resistance. Not because I want them to suffer, but because I know what it brings. It brings real growth. It brings that multiplication. Because that's what we want to see. That his power would be more fully illustrated. The parable of the weeds lets us know that even when the proclamation of the gospel is effective, an enemy, the sons of the evil one, will strive to subvert it. That's what they do. That's what they want to do. That's what they desire to do. Sowing bad seed in the master's feet. The interesting thing on this, and you maybe caught it a little bit when you look through that parable of the weeds. God permits the righteous and the wicked to coexist in the world. Sometimes, outwardly, almost indistinguishable from one another. Remember that Darnell looked a lot like the wheat. At the chosen time, the wicked will be judged and destroyed, while the righteous will shine forever in God's presence. Further, this parable, it moves forward toward a positive resolution. Do you notice that? It moves to that positive resolution. At first, the weeds appear to triumph. But then we learn that the wheat has survived. It survived. And finally, the farmer harvests and preserves his crop. So the parable moves from obstacles to the kingdom to the kingdom's growth to its consummation. That there's fruit. And it's abundant. 
to be stored in this barn. Patience. Patience is the principle. Patience, patience is not easy. There's a reason it's in that list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Patience is in there because what? it only comes through the Spirit. And it's only developed through walking through these things that Jesus points to. Patience is the principle because the kingdom has come, but evil remains, and the kingdom's still coming. Everyone who has ears to hear will follow their king and will turn to him for grace when they falter. That's part of the joy of being in Christ. We know we're going to falter, but we're not rejected. We come, we repent, and he forgives. Perhaps we need to see, see it this way. God planted a small seed in a garden. A man who had borne witness to his father and who he was through his word and his works. He was planted alone in a tomb with a bruised body that had been crucified. One man all alone. One seed. Three days later, he rose. He rose the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. Never to die again. Victor over the grave. He set apart and sent forth a small portion. Twelve men. Into the population of the world that would change everything it touched. And we, standing in that line, we behold and are part of that tree that had grown by the end of Acts from one to tens of thousands. Do you see the tree growing? Behold, that, that measure affected so much of the world that those opposed to it proclaim in Acts that those who have turned what? The world upside down have come here also. Behold the presence of the apostle to the Gentiles. This church is growing in this apostle to the Gentiles. Paul, he's imprisoned in Rome. And what's the effect been? He says, hey guys, even the ones who guard the Caesar in his bedroom have heard the truth of the gospel. It's gone into the most private chamber of the Caesar. Behold, 2,000 years later, a church continuing by God's grace and empowerment to grow and to fight the enemy and to find the seeds yet to be found. Because he calls us into that work. Go into all nations, proclaiming this word. Why? Because that's how those seeds I planted, I know where they are. It, do you wonder? I mean, this is the guy who for earlier has said what? There's an abundant harvest but the workers are few. There's an abundant harvest because he's what? This parable tells us he took the seeds. He planted them where? All around the world. And he says, I need, I need workers to do what? To go out. Because the harvest is abundant. And they need to be found. And fruit needs to be born. 
That's what you've been called into. That's what you've been called. That's what we've been called to witness and rejoice in. That growth that's taking place. And yes, it'll be hard because there's hard places to go and there's going to be resistance all the way until the end. But here's the wonder of what's been done. And that's in verses 34 and 35. He spoke to the crowds in parables, but what does he say? This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that as he opens his mouth in parables, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. But if it's been hidden and now he's speaking it, it's being revealed. So that what? So that it can be seen. By whom? Those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Hidden but now revealed. Resistance increases as time passes because the plant keeps growing. I can't stop the plant from growing. Praise God. The continuing perseverance and growth of the church is a daily reminder to us of his faithfulness to provide and to protect and to bring perseverance. But it's a daily reminder to someone else too. It's a daily reminder to the enemy that his time is short. And he will not be victorious. Indeed, he's been defeated. And as such, we know that what's that reminder going to do for him? It's going to increase. It's going to increase his engagement and opposition accordingly. Yet we need not fear. For we know whom we have believed. And that he is able to bring to completion that which he began in us. That good work. While there may be And there is a temporary obscurity, a hiddenness here while we live and work and strive to glorify him and proclaim his gospel. There's a future brightness, a revelation beyond comprehension. What was hidden is now revealed and these scattered seeds are coming to life all over. Because in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, the one who knows where and how much good seed is out there is the one who says to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That means go where he sent you. If it's here, if it's somewhere else, if it's halfway around the world, but go where he sent you, proclaim his word, live according to it, and watch the fruit come. Weeds will be encountered, but there's wheat in their midst as well. We need not despair because he's promised us that. And we also need to remember and keep this in mind. Because we proclaim, confess, follow, and believe the God who changes weeds into wheat. If you are in Christ, you look at the evidence of that in the mirror every day. 